Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Fred Glass on the line. Fred, how are you? Michael, I'm excellent. Thanks so much for having me on. How are you? I am awesome. Really looking forward to this conversation. And you've got a really amazing background in college sports and all kinds of other stuff. So I want you to share a little bit about you with the audience. Sure. Well, thank you, Michael. So I've been very fortunate in my life to have a number of leadership opportunities, you know, going back to joined uh, Governor Evan Bayh's staff here in Indiana when I was still in my 20s. Um, two years later, I was his chief of staff. I served as his chief of staff longer than anybody else in his administration. Went into private law practice, built a law practice from nothing to one of the most robust practices in a major law firm in Indianapolis. Served on their management committee in a leadership role. Ended up being on what was basically our stadium authority in Indianapolis, where we Continue to lease with the Colts by building Lucas Oil Stadium, expanding the convention center. I uh, was part of successfully pursuing a uh, Super Bowl. Um, and then uh, out of the blue, ended up going to uh, Indiana University, my alma mater, and being the athletic director there for uh, 11 and a half years. And um, oh, in between uh, uh, was Clinton Gore's uh, statewide chairman in 92, a variety of other leadership things. And I, and I don't say that to toot my own horn other than to... Uh, reflect that I have been able to do some pretty extraordinary things. And I'm a kid that grew up in the back of a Skid Row bar, had an alcoholic father, was subject to severe anxiety attacks. When I look back in retrospect, severe anxiety attacks with your history and uh, uh, burnout and and improving people's stress situations, I'm sure you can uh, understand that. So I was an extraordinarily ordinary person, Michael, with with a lot of advantages and challenges but, but, but what I've found in, in, in my reflection is by, by making my own luck, by seizing and uh, after recognizing opportunities, um, I've had a chance to do some really cool stuff. So I hope the book is, is fun and, and, and sports fans will like it. But ultimately, I think it's a book about empowerment, about taking control of our lives. Definitely a very uh, exciting and diverse, although I see a lot of connections in between all the experiences you've had and my own personal background, public accounting, IT, finance, healthcare, and all consulting, all the things that I've done. And a lot of people look at it's like, well, those are all so dramatically different. But what I found, and I'm guessing the same for you, is your tool bag gets bigger and you just start using different tools from different experiences that you had to the point where you don't even think about, okay, where did I learn how to use this tool? I'm just going to use it because it'll fit this particular situation. Yeah, Michael, you're hundred percent right. I, I grew up loving government politics and always thought that government politics was my passion. But one day my wife said, that, that's not your passion. Leadership is your passion. And that was almost like a light went off because whether it's government politics, um, the law firm, community events, um, um, and then IU, I realized that it's leadership that gets me uh, going. And that was very emancipating because it sort of opened these horizons because in a, you can overstate this, but in a way, leadership is leadership regardless of the discipline or the form. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a learned skill. It's something you could keep learning about. You know, 
hard for me to tell you that because you're the expert in this. But it, it's so it's something that sort of gave me permission to focus on as opposed to a particular industry or a particular profession. I don't want to dive too much into the Big Ten side of things, but you had mentioned it's like somehow you found yourself as the AD of Indiana University, which you you went to school. So, I mean, that is one of those things that would be, I, I think, in many you know people that you know attend a university, the thought of you know leading the you know the sports program of a prestigious Big Ten school. Uh, there's very few of those roles, you know, they, you know, that's one of those things. It's just not, there's not like a thousand AD roles in the big 10, uh, just a few. So talk us through that, you know, how, you know, how were you made aware of the role? What, you know, what, you know, what were the decisions that you had to say, okay, you know what, I'm, I want to take this on because you know, obviously with, at that point in your career, you could have, you know, done a lot of different things, but you know, what enticed you about taking on that role? Thanks, Michael. So um, I didn't aspire to be the AD and I was minding my own business when the search committee actually reached out to me and started talking to me about it. And it was kind of a crazy idea because I didn't play sports and I wasn't from athletic administration. But ironically, um, the uh, uh, chairman of the search committee was a law school classmate of mine. We had been on opposite sides of political ballots. He was uh, ballot battles. He was in one party. I was in the other party. But we were both, while partisan, reach across the aisle things. I, I tell people, don't forget that it's a round world, you know. And if I had um, um, vented my spleen with him back in the day, he might have thought I didn't have the temperament to be AD. Um, but I think he saw me as a bridge builder. I used uh, athletic department. Was it a Nader? Um, we had not too long ago uh, had the Coach Knight firing. Our football coach had died of a horrible brain um, uh, disease. And the reason that I was the job was open was uh, – Kelvin Sampson had, you know, been cheating at Indiana and, uh, and we had a major infractions case. So anyway, I thought it was the craziest thing I ever heard. And I sort of dismissed it. Then I started thinking, you know, I've been a staff guy my whole life. You know, I was a political guy. I was a staff guy. I was a lawyer. You're kind of staff guy. Um, maybe, maybe your experience was you're an accountant. You're a staff guy. But, but now you're the head of, uh, you know, Michael Levitt um, uh, Leadership Breakfast. And I got, I was, could be the head of something that was about sports and and college and, you know, college town and all that. So it started to be attractive to me, um, um, even if it was manufacturing widgets to be in charge of something, but especially exciting about college and sports. And so I pursued it then. And, and um, the book details are a lot of twists and turns that, get, particularly given the president said, the only real criterion here is this guy's got to be somebody who's uh, been an athletic director before. You know, I was 0 for 1 on that score, um, but ultimately convinced the committee and then convinced him that I was the low risk, high reward alternative because of the experiences that I would uh, bring to the table. In 11 plus years there, I, I think they made the right decision. <laughs> um, you know, I just, you know, and, and I remember that era again, you know, being, you know, you know, from Michigan and, you know, keeping tabs on, you know, the big 10 and what was going on. I remember, you know, what had transpired with coach Knight and, and, and all of the, the drama around that and just other things as well. And then, you know, go in, you know, it's a leadership position and sure. As your spouse said, you know, you love leadership and leadership means challenges from some time. And you went into a challenging 
situation. Some could say you went into, you know, a house that was on fire, you know, not, not to compare to what firefighters do, but it, it was not an ideal situation to go into, but going in there and turning the program around and stabilizing things the way that you did and, you know, the people that you brought in, because leadership is not one, leadership is many, and you bringing in the right people uh, to fill the right roles. Uh, I, I think, you know, your, your, your fingerprints will be on that program for a very long time because of you doing what you did, because otherwise it could, you know, it could have been disastrous in the long term, and they could still be struggling. And, you know, thankfully, you know, they're not. So kudos to you for that. So it, you, the book has so many different things in there, and obviously because of your, your background, but you know, making your own luck. I think that's one of the things that, you know, we hear people say, oh, they're lucky. Luck is preparation in my, it's putting yourself in a position to be able to obtain a goal, a desire, a situation. Um, does luck play a, a factor into it? You know, circumstances, things fall into place. You know, the, the ball goes in, in the net, the, the receiver catches, you know, the ball um, inbounds and you, know, you, you win the Big Ten title. You know, all these things are, you know, if that ball was a centimeter off, or an inch off, then different story. So there's all kinds of factors involved. But again, I think you know the book and and what you've done with with leadership and utilizing the skills that you've picked up along the way. I think you know paid big dividends for the work that you've done there. Well, thanks, Michael. I I, I appreciate that, and I couldn't agree with you more about your observations on luck. You know, luck. I think some people define as happenstance. Oh, that person was lucky, you know, that that happened. But but it seems to me that's always the same people that are lucky, right? You know, a lawyer gets on an airplane and one lawyer may chat up their seatmate and get off the plane with a client. And the other lawyer's got their face in something the whole time and they're oblivious to what's going on around them. I mean, there's a reason why they get that client or there's a reason why a colleague gets a choice work assignment. You know, they, maybe they let their boss know that they had some availability. They let their boss know they were interested, they killed their last assignment. And others um, who maybe don't take it as an active role in their own destiny, they're quick to dismiss it as happenstance, right? That's comforting. You know, I, I can't, there's not anything I can really do. They're, they're lucky, but you can be more right. I think Seneca the Younger, the, the uh, Roman philosopher, is the first one to say, uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And Lincoln and a variety of people said that since. But I think that's so, so true. And, and underscores that it's a, it's a proactive uh, concept, right? So Arnold Palmer said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And, and, and as a lawyer, I say, the more I'm out there, uh, the luckier uh, I get. And the book is really about, sets out 10 precepts at the beginning of how do you make your own luck? How do you recognize and seize opportunities that I sort of backed into and figured out over time in the arc of my career? But I think if people mindfully see those, they might be able to utilize them better. And then the book isn't a how-to kind of trade manual with chapter one is precept one and chapter two is precept two, but it's really the arc of a career with, I hope, some entertaining stories and vignettes and then stir in the, uh, the application of those precepts, hopefully in a not preachy way where people can see how they can apply them in their own careers, their own lives. Yeah, I love the format of the book because, again, as you just described, it it brings you along the journey and it weaves in you know, nicely the 
the lessons, you know, the observations that you had and the preparation to put yourself into that position, you know, the, you know, the search firm reached out for you and, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, even though you had mentioned that, you know, the one condition was must be a previous AD of a program. Well, you know, you, you were 0 for 1 right there, but, you know, thankfully, you know, your, your colleague across the aisle, you know, recognize that, okay, you've got the skill. And, and I think that bridge building component you mentioned is something, is a leadership skill that really, really needs to be highlighted, enhanced right now. I mean, always been important, but uh, in society today with the pandemic, political divide, the discourse that we see on news, social media, all these things, uh, it doesn't matter what flavor of the news you watch, it's, there's this uh, there's not a bridge to be found uh, the way it's being portrayed. Now I could be, you know, interpreting it wrong, but you know, my, my goal and when I talk with people is there's more in common with our adversaries than, than not. It's just, we got to find that common ground, build that bridge, work on the things that we agree on. There's always going to be things that we won't agree on, but you know what, if you focus on that common ground, that's when we move forward. And that's when the things that we need from a country, a city, your town, your company, whatever the case may be, find that common ground. And when you do that, then momentum builds up and you can have those civil conversations instead of the accusational ones that unfortunately seems to be highlighted in today's media. Yeah, Michael, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's one of the reasons I like your show so much. You really model fighting common ground and bringing things into a way people can understand it. The other day you had a, a brain scientist on, you know, and you did a masterful job of helping us understand what he understood about the communication of cells and all that stuff. That may be a random example, but I, I, I think the, uh, the, the, the way you're able to find common cause with your guests is, is, is very um uh, uplifting and and does model the kind of behavior because let's face it politicians um, talking heads on cable tv they're all exhorting us to be afraid of each other these uh, the other guys are the bad guys as you point out it's not a monopoly of the left or the right or this party or that party it's it's just a massive polarization but one of the things i've found is maybe you found the same thing um, people are very disarmed if you try to break through that you know if, if you if you are vulnerable and, and and let people know that you believe they have good faith. You're trying to understand where they come from. Um, you know, you apply the platinum rule instead of the golden rule. That, that was a new one for me, but I found that very powerful. You know, you I'm sure you know what that is. Your listeners may not, but the golden rule is treat other people the way you want to be treated. The platinum rule calls on us to treat other people the way they want to be treated. An environment where people are coming from different socioeconomic and other backgrounds. Um, I think that's very powerful. So one of the things I found at the department, because it was so dysfunctional, I really had to work to heal it before I could lead it. Um, and we had to do things to find a common spirit de core, common goals um, that everybody could buy into regardless of, of, of how they came to the organization. And, and one of the things I've learned, and, and I see it in your materials too, is it's all about being a value-based organization. You know, if you're going to be successful, especially in a time of rapid change, you have to know who you are. And it needs to be value-based. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book, the values that hopefully can cut through some of that polarization, uh, cut through some of the dysfunction 
um, and, and and fight through you know changing times to uh, for the success of the overall enterprise. Love what you said about you know when you first went into the organization, it needed to be healed before you started implementing anything that you want to do. There's a natural desire that I think in leaders to go in and make an impact. And they think, well, I'm going to do this and then we're going to reshape this and this. And yes, some of those things may need to be done, but you don't need to do those day one. You know, the first go in because everyone that's there is going, okay, what's this AD going to be like? Am I going to lose my job? What's going to happen? What are my hours going to be? Am I going to have to, you know, get a couch for my cubicle because I'm going to be here all day and all night like the coach is? You know, all those things. I start thinking about all this and you're like, no, you just go in and, and just observe and go, okay, let's everybody take a deep breath and all right, let's look at things and let's, let's shape some things together. And it, for some reason, it, it, when you're talking, it, it reminded me of my first job at a family grocery store and it was a family owned grocery store. And my dad um, worked for the auto industry and in a union environment. So day before I start, he goes in now, he he tells me this, he says, okay, now I want you to go up to Paul. Paul Felice was the owner of the, the grocery store and say, you know, thank you for hiring me. I can't wait to organize this place, which means unionize for those that don't do it. And my, my mom goes, Denny, you trying to get him fired on the first day? <laughs> it was just one of those things where it's like, don't go into a place and say, oh, this, I'm going to change everything because you, you don't know. And even though you may be best intention and you've got, you know, the, the resume that is, you know, miles long of amazing experience, each experience might be different. So, you know, applying what you did in the law firm, yes, you might be able to use some of those techniques in the AD role, but some you may not. And just going in and going, having the patience. And I think sometimes that can be really difficult, especially if there's a lot of noise going around and you see a lot of issues. And like you said, it needed to heal. So your natural inclination is to, okay, well, I want to fix this. Well, sometimes you have to observe it to see how the best way to fix it is. Yeah, that's a hundred percent right, Michael. When I, I, I went down there and um, uh, beyond all the other things I mentioned, I was the fifth athletic director in eight years. And so when you turn, imagine churning leadership like that, it's, it's really sort of unbelievable. And, and not surprisingly, the folks there were kind of shell-shocked. They didn't get it. They didn't realize they were. They, they didn't want to color outside the lines. They didn't want to take chances. They didn't want to get noticed. They were just going to wait me out like they'd waited everybody else out um, before. And so we did try to work to create um, a spree de corps that, that, that people could rally around. And I, to your point, I, I made a point not to do anything for like three or four months. I didn't fire anybody. I didn't make any structural changes. A, I wanted to learn because I was I was a non-traditional candidate, which means I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I, I did need to try to learn, um, but I also need to give people a chance to get used to me a little bit. And I was this lawyer from Indianapolis, and what was that all about? So I, from day one, um, I never wore a suit, always wore IU gear, pullover. I liked that. It was convenient. But whereas at the law firm, you know, that was the era of, you know, casual Fridays, which became casual every day. I wore a suit and tie every day. because I'm like, this is my uniform. My clients are paying outrageous amounts per hour. I'm going to, I'm going to give them, you know, the uniforms kind of like the, there was a study in the Harvard business review about um, services being provided by a veterinarian. And, you know, if they didn't wear a white jacket, 
they weren't considered as good as if they did wear a white jacket. Same service, but they expect that uniform. So I went from purposely wearing a suit every day to purposely not wearing a suit every day because of the environment that I was trying to generate. And you, you adapted to the environment in a way where people would be able to hear and listen to what you had to say. Because, yeah, I, I worked in nonprofit and uh, last role that I was in, uh, one of the board members, because I went in, you know, interviewed suit and tie uh, and all of that. And he, he said, yeah, you're not going to want to wear that here. And I'm like, why? So this, this environment, the, it, it would be standoffish to these people because the previous administration, they never showed up in a suit or anything like that. So it was like, okay, all right, well, I'll pick up some more business casual attire and and adjust accordingly because again you know it's each you know you think it was just close it's like no it's there's there's a message that's coming through and meeting doing the you know the, the platinum analogy you mentioned before it's like being them and treating them the way that they want to be treated uh, includes you know wearing the right gear and i think it proves to you know your success that you had there so in wrapping up in, in your book you know do you have a favorite chapter or favorite section uh that when you think about it you know brings a smile to your face um i think my favorite section is um the one about my dad's skid row bar not because it brings a smile to my face it almost brings more of a tear to my eye but the the process of reflecting on that and and digesting the experiences of a child now as a grown man was very powerful to me and writing this book was such a blessing michael because it helped make me recall people who had impacts in my life and i find myself picking up the phone or taking them to lunch and saying you know what i don't know if you know but we worked on that project together i learned an awful lot uh, about life so the whole book was a great experience that early those early years and reflecting on those was probably the most powerful thing for me that's awesome. And it's an amazing book. So I highly recommend people pick it up. So friend, I've loved this conversation. Where can people find out more about you and this awesome work you're doing? Well, you know, when you write a book, they tell you to get a website. So I've got one, Michael, it's fred-glass.com. And it's got where you can get the book. I've been trying to promote local bookstores. And so there's, there's links for local bookstores or Amazon's easy and a little bit about the events we're having and the things we're doing, the picture gallery. So fred-glass.com is the best way to connect with me. Awesome. I'll definitely have that in the show notes. So Fred, love the conversation, continued success to you. And, and thank you for all that you do. Michael, thanks so much for having me. It was a real treat. Thanks for listening to the Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.